I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now on to our conversation as we continue our state-by-state deep dives. What do you say we mess with Texas? In a place known for big personalities, big everything, really, this year is no exception. Of course, this year, the eyes of Texas and eyes in many other parts of the country are on the governor's race. That's where Democrats, with filibustering state Senator Wendy Davis, thought they had their best chance in 20 years to win back the Austin mansion. But with rising biography questions and lower-than-hoped-for poll numbers, can that chance become reality? Elsewhere, Republican Senator Ted Cruz is the state's most popular politician. The state might give us two Republican presidential candidates, and wouldn't you know it, a Bush Republican is running for statewide office. But with immigration fights and Tea Party battles, could state Republicans overreach? And what can and should Democrats do to mount a Texas-sized comeback? Few follow Texas politics more closely than Wayne Slater, senior political writer for the Dallas Morning News. He's covered Texas and national politics for 20 years. He's also co-author of two books on Texas political guru Carl Rove. One is Bush's Brain. The other is The Architect. Wayne, thanks for joining me. With all the outsized political personalities that Texas gives us, you could really have an in-state book publishing factory, couldn't you? Actually, you could, and a publishing and movie factory. I just watched the new Ann Richards documentary on HBO. It's quite good. It's, it's pure hagiography, but it still is a wonderful remembrance of the fact that from Bush and Ann Richards, Rick Perry, Ted Cruz, we've got some um, great contemporary politicians. Oh, incredible contemporary. I mean, in, is there anyone, I mean, have you met anyone in your uh, 20 years, 20 plus years of covering politics in, in Texas or maybe elsewhere who gave better quotes, delivered better one-liners than Ann Richards? <laughs> Not only did she give great quotes, I won't go into it in great detail right now, but let's just say she was always three steps ahead of all us uh, um, in the, in the um, press pool who followed her uh, and there were times when I regretted asking the question because her response was to cut me to the quick. I, I would bet. I mean, she uh, she was certainly very, very sharp. And obviously, uh, her, uh, you know, her silver foot in the mouth line, you know, remains one of the, uh, you know, all time funny. I mean, you know, maybe not funny on the on the Bush or the Republican side, but it was certainly <laughs> it certainly captured it really captured everything about that time and really everything about the questions, you know, at that time about H.W. Uh, Bush. Um, of course, you know, obviously he had the last laugh. Uh, he became president. And he, and he did. It was extraordinary to actually watch that moment. That moment. I know you just want to talk about some other things, but that moment was an extraordinary moment. In Texas and sort of national Democratic political history, it was the 1988 Democratic National Convention in New Orleans, 
Ann Richards, largely unknown outside of Texas, state treasurer, took the stage, made the speech, had that iconic line, which resonated so remarkably, this Ann Richards, an emerging force about a Bush uh, who would subsequently have a son who would eventually beat her uh, for governor. But what you saw was a, and I was there that night, you saw Ann Richards step onto a stage in a national spotlight, deliver a speech, and move instantly in a single moment from a state political figure to really one of the more remarkable national political figures uh, that, we, that we've ever seen. So you don't often see those things happen in an instant, but you did that night. No, you don't. That's a fantastic retelling of it. In fact, it's, uh, you know, after this conversation, I think I'm going to go uh, YouTube that and, and go watch that again. Cause you're, uh, and, and I'll watch for that. I'll watch for kind of, you know, physically what, uh, you know, if, the, if I, how I notice any kind of transformation. Obviously, it occurred over time. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a moment. Well, there, there have been a, quite a few moments, of course, in this year's Texas gubernatorial race. And one of the big ones kind of occurred uh, thanks to you, didn't it? Uh, your story in January that, uh, you know, raised questions, open questions about certain details uh, around Wendy Davis's uh, biography. Um, first of all, just to, you know, for, for anyone who's been, been under a rock, why was Wendy Davis's biography, why is her biography and her story such an important component of her run for governor? And, and you know, what's, has the commotion died down at all around your story? No, oh, no, it hasn't died down at all. I get a call uh, every day uh, from, the, from the campaigns on both sides and from uh, readers, some of whom like the issue, some of don't. Let me, let me lay that. Let me, let me set the table here for just a moment, Chris. Yeah, please, please. And that's that one of the things that's happened, as you alluded to or at the beginning of this, was the emergence of Wendy Davis, a Fort Worth state senator who made a national name for herself to some extent last year with a filibuster against an abortion regulation bill in the Texas Senate. Democrats have not elected a governor in Texas since Ann Richards in 1990. Democrats have not elected a statewide office holder to any office statewide since 1994. And so it's really been a, a, quite a drought, political drought for, for Democrats uh, here. And, and the most recent races uh, statewide up and down, whether it was governor or anything else, have really uh, been um, uh, not very fruitful for, for Democrats. Not only did they not win anything statewide, uh, they also have not done very well uh, in those races, and we have seen an erosion of the voting strength, of the voting participation, and frankly, the Democratic Party, uh, once all-powerful Democratic Party in Texas, like many southern states. Texas has 38 electoral votes. Nationally, a group of people saw Wendy Davis, both people in this state and elsewhere, Democrats, saw her as the possible instrument to change things, to turn Texas blue, or at least to begin to turn this very red state, the biggest red state in the country, blue. If Texas has 38 electoral votes, and at any moment, when Texas could become competitive politically in a race, presidential race, then all a future presidential candidate would need is California, New York, Massachusetts, and Texas, four states. And you would have nearly half the electoral votes needed to win the White House. So we see the potential strength of Texas 
And we saw from, uh, from Democrats nationally the idea, the expectation, or at least the hope, that Wendy Davis, the newest, the most uh, sort of charismatic political figure in Texas, uh, they, they thought, since Ann Richards, as an instrument that might, even if she loses, even if she were to lose in November, as a figure who could begin the process significantly of building bigger voter turnouts, building the Democratic Party, maybe to Hillary Clinton's benefit in 2016 if she were the nominee, but certainly to the National Democratic Party, if not the state party, by 2016, 2018, 2020. And this was supposed to be the beginning of it. Wendy Davis, part of the Wendy Davis story, a significant part, which her campaign pushed strongly late last year and early this year as her campaign for governor against the um, uh, clear frontrunner, the Republican attorney general named Greg Abbott. Part of her effort was to illustrate and emphasize her remarkable personal story. She said that she was a divorced teenage mother living in a trailer park who worked her way through Harvard Law School. Great story, compelling narrative, extraordinary thing to pitch to voters, especially women and moderates and sort of dispirited Democrats as uh, the sort of the, the shepherd who could lead them out of the political wilderness. The truth of the Wendy Davis story was that although some elements were fact, many others were conflations or misrepresentations or frankly weren't true. She was never actually a, a, uh, a divorced teenage mother in a trailer. She lived in the trailer briefly with a uh, ex-husband, a first husband. Uh, she didn't work her way through law school uh, at Harvard. She was admitted, but it was a second husband who paid that. And perhaps more damaging to the, to the campaign, uh, when Wendy Davis got a second divorce, uh, the children, uh, two daughters, went to live with the father, and she was ordered to pay child support. Now, I say that because those elements were left out or given very short shrift in her official campaign narrative. And so when I wrote the story of a more complete uh, narrative uh, and a more accurate narrative, then it really served as a problem and continues to serve as a problem for the Davis campaign. And it's not just that that narrative that the campaign was pushing was just a bit too shiny and not quite precise, but it also potentially could alienate the very voters that she needs. If Wendy Davis is to win the governor's office, she needs a big turnout among a growing constituency of Hispanic voters, but she also needs to recruit women, especially moderate Republican-leaning women in the suburbs of Dallas and Houston and San Antonio. And the message from that biography story that she had sort of skimped on the biography and not been completely honest, including the fact that she had been ordered to pay child support and the daughters had lived went to live with the husband, the second husband, yeah. was something that her campaign says is going to be a big problem even in November. And so let me let me ask you both locally and nationally, because you, you're, the way that you have 
outlined Wendy Davis's rise, and and I think that you're right. I mean, she really became an overnight national sensation. And and so let me let me work my way back to that. So first, kind of locally or regional within Texas, um, has the, what is the fallout been? Has there you know have have folks kind of really rallied around her? Are folks kind of running away from her? I mean, I know the poll numbers. I know she's she's trailing by you know ten, twelve, fourteen points depending on on what poll you're looking at. Um, but but first, what's been the reaction to your piece and then the, the reaction to Wendy Davis within Texas itself? Well, right away, her supporters, very strong Democrat supporters, supporters of abortion rights, supporters of Democratic Party politics, uh, many women, feminists and others have rallied to her support. But you have to wonder, weren't those voters she was going to get anyway? Maybe. But they are ferociously supportive. They've denounced me. They've denounced the media who have written these stories, uh, followed on, on this line of uh, inquiry, uh, and have been very, very defensive of Wendy Davis. Republicans, many Republicans, including a, uh, a, no, a growing number of um, uh, group of uh, Republican women who are a very powerful uh, constituency, a voting group in this, this state, uh, say that uh, this is a reason enough for them not to vote for Wendy Davis. They've called me. They've uh, done television shows, and so if if the electorate was polarized in Texas before, it's extremely polarized around uh, this issue. As I said, for the Wendy Davis people, what they've got to do, and they've told me this, is put together a message about their opponent, Greg Abbott, that can transcend any concern of the voters, especially suburban, moderate women, um, about Wendy Davis uh, and whether or not she can be trusted because of this biography. That's, um, a, that's a pretty high yeah. bar, isn't it? So they basically, they're saying that not only do they need to kind of, you know, restate her personal story and make sure that it's very clear and understandable and, and, and truthful and believable in everyone's minds, and I'm sure they believe that, that they can do that. Not only do they have to do that, but they have to raise significant doubts about uh, Greg Abbott at the same time. Is that is that what you're saying? Is that the strategy for her to be able to pull and, this off? And that is... That is the strategy. It's interesting because in 2000, I mean, in 1990, when Ann Richards ran for governor uh, against, uh, that was the Clayton Williams, the kind of a foot-in-the-mouth cowboy that she ran against in, in, in 1990, and also against George W. Bush in 1994. In those races, the real rock'em sock'em of the campaign general election didn't happen until well into the summer uh, and midway. Uh, through uh, the year. But this Rock'em Sock'em has very much started already in Texas. And along that line, what the Davis campaign has done is jumped on every episode uh, that they can to uh, depress what one, one uh, Davis aide told me was an effort to potentially depress voters uh, who might otherwise vote for her Republican opponent, beginning with an appearance by her Republican opponent, Greg Abbott, and Ted Nugent, the controversial rock guitarist yep. uh, and yep. 
and, and guns, gun rights supporter. And what they did is they leaped on, on Nugent, uh, both Wendy Davis and allied groups, and pointed out that he had said some things about underaged girls, that he had been with underaged girls, he liked underaged girls. He even had a song called Jailbait uh, back in the day about um, underage groupies. Well, that, as you can imagine, doesn't sit well with uh, moderate women especially, no. and certainly moms and dads in nope. suburbs who might be potentially there. Following that, uh, they jumped on a, a line by the Attorney General, the, the Republican, in which he described the, or called South Texas a third world country. Now, he didn't precisely say that, but he, he talked about South Texas, and then he mentioned third world countries, and so it was enough for the Davis people to remind South Texas, Southern, uh, South Texas Democrats uh, about this. And at the moment, even as uh, we're talking uh, this month, the Wendy Davis campaign is very actively uh, online and in videos and appearances uh, and in speeches talking about uh, the attorney general who had a role looking at a cancer research agency. He was supposed to be doing oversight, but what actually happened was this state agency steered grants to campaign contributors. So everything they're doing is designed, not everything, but much of what they're doing is designed to do exactly what you just said, put a seed of doubt in the minds of potential voters as we approach November, and heck, it's only May. Yeah, and so is it still early in Texas? I mean, you know, you said usually these things in Texas, the rock'em sock'em doesn't start till summer. It obviously started early. I guess one, is it still early in Texas? Does she have time? And two, uh, you know, and it's amazing, but it kind of speaks to the tone of this race. We haven't even, we've hardly mentioned Greg Abbott. Is there anything, you know, how does he stand with voters? And is 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 it possible to bring him down? Yeah, it's going to be very hard. As I said earlier, no Democrat has won the governor's office since 1990 in Texas. Uh, if you really look at the stats, we're about a uh, 10, 8, 10, 12 point Republican state. That is to say, a generic statewide candidate. Uh, the Republican already has 10 to 12 points. Romney beat Obama by 16 points in 2012. McCain beat Obama by 11 points. And, and so it, it would be very, very difficult. Wendy Davis's only hope, there is a path to victory, but it, the hill is very high. Her only hope is to do these two things, is to not only get Hispanic voters to vote for her, because they will. The Hispanic voters who show up in November, if history is any guide, will vote two to one for Wendy Davis. The problem is Hispanic voters in Texas don't vote in off-year general elections. They were, they're only about 38% of the, of the population of the eligible Hispanic voters actually shows up. So how can they increase the turnout of Hispanic voters? And they have various strategies. And the other was the aforementioned appeal to women. Uh, in 1990, Anna Richards won for governor, in part because she got 61% of women to vote for her. And she did that by making her Republican opponent unacceptable in the minds, not of Democrats, they were never going to vote for the Republican, but in the minds of many Republican-leaning voters. Greg Abbott 
will be a candidate very difficult uh, for the Wendy Davis people to portray that way. It doesn't mean she can't win, but I've got to tell you, Chris, this is a this is a tough, tough battle in order and, to do that. And you've raised the turnout question as well. And I was reading where on the in the primary, um, Republicans had about eight hundred thousand more voters turn out for their primary than Democrats did. And you've talked about, you know, what a, what a red state this is. And is that the type of gap? I mean, how does, how does the Democratic Party come back from that type of gap where you're nearly, you know, you're 800,000 votes or voters behind even, even when, you know, the, the polling place opens? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that number isn't the be-all and end-all. It's something to look at, but it's not everything. All the contested races that meant anything in the primary were on the Republican side. They really were. And so you had excitement on the Republican side in the primary. So you had a lot of Republicans showing up. Not only is this a red state, but where people are inclined to be, more inclined to be Republican than Democrats, but you had races that counted on the Republican side and the Democratic side, a dispirited group, uh, had races that didn't uh, attract a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, that's a very, very fair point. You're right. The, the, the lieutenant governor race in particular, I know, has been been hotly great contested. Race. Yeah, it's a great, great race. Great. So so that, that's, a, that's a fair point. That certainly will bring uh, uh, many more folks uh, out to the point. Yeah. Chris, the, the one thing to remember is if you actually look, and this is, this is what gives these uh, uh, battleground Texas uh, folks, they're folks who are trying to turn Texas blue, give them some heart, is that if you look at the number of voters who actually show up, the physical number of voters who actually showed up in recent races, there are enough Democrats out there over time who, if they actually all showed up, could elect Democrats to office in Texas in general elections. They just don't. And what are you seeing in terms of national support for Wendy Davis? I mean, you, you said earlier how she really, you know, got into this position and was able, you know, and, and grew and was maybe even to some extent, you know, put forward into this governor's race by the strength of the national support. And she, I mean, it was really was unbelievable how she you know, just came out of nowhere nationally to become such a large figure. Has the national support been there for her um, following the biography questions? I mean, you, you went through what has happened yeah. within Texas. What about nationally? Well, it's kind of a mixed picture, to be honest with you. She has been, uh, she's gone to Chicago and Los Angeles and New York and elsewhere uh, with, um, with, with all kinds of Republican uh, figures of, of note, uh, Nancy Pelosi and other members of the, uh, of the Senate, especially women and, and others who have sort of hosted fundraisers and gatherings and efforts. Annie's List is a local uh, group. Emily's List, a national group uh, that supports Democratic pro-choice women uh, is has pledged a lot of money. Some unions are, say they're going to they're in uh, all in for her. But at the same time, the Democratic uh, Governors Association, which is an important group, um, let it be known. Uh, they probably shouldn't have done this, but they let it be known the other day that their priorities are a series of other gubernatorial races in 2014, and that the Texas race is not one of their top priorities. That sent a signal to Wendy Davis, to the Wendy Davis supporters elsewhere, that uh, maybe she's not going to get the kind of institutional, national, democratic, financial support that she might ho- hope to get. But having said that, I mean, so far, she's, she's not going to outraise the Republican. 
But I looked at her latest campaign uh, uh, report, and a uh, quarter of that money comes from outside Texas. And the beautiful thing about Texas, because it's America, it's not a, it's where there are no limits, there are no rules. It, is uh, Texas still is is Texas still America, Wayne? Well, until Rick Perry can make Texas uh, another its own country and secede, uh, we still are part of America. But we're a part of America with very few laws, very few regulations, uh, as little government as we can. And that includes the opportunity for political candidates in Texas running statewide to raise as much money as they want, no limits on campaign contributions. If somebody wants to give $100,000 to a candidate, no problem. And frankly, that's what Wendy Davis needs to do, find big money contributors nationally in order to wage this war here in Texas. And lastly for me on the, on the governor's race, and then I want to ask you a couple of questions about some of the other large personalities in Texas, Ted Cruz um, and, and, you know, Prescott Bush coming out and uh, coming out into the race and, and, and others uh, as well. But uh, on the governor's thing, you know, you talk about te- Democrats not having won the, the governor's office, uh, you know, Richard stepped down in uh, 95 or she lost the race in 94, so not being elected right. since 1990. I think you said no other statewide race in, in 20, 25 years, something like this. Well, What's happened? Did 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 Texas shift? Did the Democratic Party shift around uh, away from Texas? Would Ann Richards win today? Ann Richards would not win today. Um, and basically, what happened was uh, that we, like so many Southern states, and there's part of Texas that considers itself Southern, uh, began to lose Democrat uh, support with the Civil Rights Act in 1964, 65, 66. The emergence of Ronald Reagan and his sort of robust republicanism was very appealing in a place like this. And also, there was a period, you have to think about this, Chris, there was a period there in Texas uh, where when Daddy Bush, uh, Bush 41, first ran for and won for Congress, there was a Bush on the ballot in Texas in almost every race, at least every four years, for more than a a decade and a half, almost two decades. Um, And so the combination of institutional support, ideological uh, uh, sort of conservatism, which was natural for Texas, um, and frankly, early on, race politics in some quarters, uh, contributed to the rise of the Republican Party. And I don't want to overstate this, but instrumental to the institutional rise of the Republican Party, the mechanical rise of the Republican Party, was Karl Rove, who late in in the mid-1980s began a process whereby on issues like tort reform, campaign contributions, uh, frankly, race and other issues, uh, was able to capture this emerging Republican uh, voter group. And as Texas' economy grew, these people came, they lived in suburbs, they voted Republican, Carl understood how to capture them. It was a perfect storm for Republicans, and it's been a real, uh, a real problem for a decade and a half, two decades for Democrats. Now, if I could just find a place where I could uh, find a good book on Karl Rove. You, you don't happen to know of any, do you? <laughs> I know a couple. You I know, know a, couple a couple you'd recommend? I know, okay. I know a guy. Yeah, I know <laughs> yeah. a guy. Right. Uh, so, Karl uh, uh, Rove, Ann Richards, big personalities everywhere. Is the most popular po- politician in Texas today Ted Cruz? You betcha he is. In fact, a recent public policy polling uh, poll uh, 
said that uh, maybe and, and they're democratic. And they're democratic. Guns. That's a democratic leaning poll, right? That's that's right. That's yeah. right. And frankly, I, you know, I've looked over the uh, PPP's results and in recent elections, and they're not in Texas. They're not bad. They're, no, 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 no. They're them. they're great, and we've had them on. No, I, I just want to point out that the stat you're gonna you're gonna talk about this comes not from a Republican leaning operation. So so go ahead, please. Yeah, and, and so people like Ted Cruz, 25% of the people in Texas uh, would like to, in the latest poll, would like Ted Cruz, pick Ted, Ted Cruz first. Uh, these are Republicans now. Uh, uh, as If they could choose a, a presidential nominee. Uh, Jeb Bush follows Rick Perry's back uh, in about 10% or so. But 25% of Texans, Republicans, say, uh, I'd like to see Ted Cruz as the presidential uh, nominee. I mean, his popularity rating was, I think his approval rating was 47% in that poll. That's plus 12. That's awfully... That's, you know, that, that's an awfully good number. Uh, he, he speaks to a kind of populism as well as an obvious conservatism, uh, to some extent a social conservatism, which is appealing to many uh, folks here, as well as an economic, you know, uh, pro-business conservative. He speaks the language that Texans like, and more importantly, or well, maybe, maybe as importantly, when Ted Cruz does what seems to some like these goofy things, you get on the floor of the Senate and you stand up and you challenge and you insult you, even your own party members, that's seen by many Texans, not all, but many, uh, certainly Texas Republicans, as straight talk, as direct speaking, as someone who knows how to take it to the other guy. And that is an appealing kind of uh, pugilistic, uh, you know, politics that many in Texas find, if not endearing, at least appealing. Yeah, it's it's very Texas, uh, to no, no doubt. What about the Tea Party? You know, as I was doing research and, and looking at the different races, and I, I'm trying to really understand the status of the Tea Party, you know, versus the establishment in Texas. You know, you, you got you got Greg Abbott at the head of the ticket on the governor's race, but then in the the lieutenant governor's race, there's a real battle going on there, and and uh, you know the the the, the Tea Party ask candidate might take that. You got Ted Cruz is the most popular um, uh, politician, but but you're not seeing kind of a statewide takeover Tea Party, you know, strength, or, or, or are you? What's the status of the Tea Party and really the Tea Party versus establishment within the Republican Party, which is a national story for Republicans? Yeah, and, and it's happening here as well. The, the Tea Party is very, very strong, um, very, very strong in some uh, congressional and certainly some legislative districts. But you, you're right. It, it reflects itself on the statewide level. Cruz was able to win and to defeat the uh, a, a, a long-time uh, establishment Republican to win his Senate seat because he understood that you seize on that emerging Tea Party strength and in 2012, and he won. I mean, that, that was that was what took him uh, uh, to victory. The lieutenant governor, right, right now, the lieutenant governor's race pits, as you alluded, to the uh, incumbent, a guy named David Dewhurst, establishment Republican against the Tea Party challenger, a state senator. Uh, and I think the smart money is on the Tea Party uh, challenger. Uh, you're going to, you see the same dynamic in the attorney general's race. There's a guy who's seen as somewhat more establishment figure running. And again, these are the Republican runoffs 
for those on the Republican side. Uh, the Republican has a for attorney general has an establishment figure, a guy named Dan Branch, state rep, uh, against a state senator, a guy named uh, Paxton, who has some of the Tea Party strength, but around whom has been um, uh, he's been he's been sort of hobbled a bit in recent days by some questions about his business practices. But what you see is this extraordinary strength of the Tea Party to win races when nobody shows up. Now, if everybody's going to show up in, in a uh, general election, you have the, uh, the dynamic of the Tea Party faction uh, who, over, who overlap in large part with social conservatives, many of those Republicans in Texas, as well as the establishment conservatives, the business-minded uh, folks who, who don't really mind uh, things like spending a little bit more uh, just to, uh, on education uh, so long as they're... they're uh, Regulations are cut for their business. I mean, that's an overstatement, but that's the dynamic there. But in a primary race, and now we're in a couple of runoffs, only the most passionate voters are going to turn out. And those are the Tea Party voters. And I got to tell you, they are the tail that is wagging the dog of Texas politics right now. I see little to diminish the influence of very strong conservative Tea Party forces uh, in this primary votes that are coming up or in this fall's general election. And if it's going to be a national good Republican year, as many people say, nationally. It's, it's going to be a Republican year in Texas, as it has been, but much of that is going to be the conservative wing of the party expressing its, um, its support for the for the candidate they see as the most conservative. And I'm no political operative. I'm no Texas political operative. But uh, if you're a Democrat in Texas, don't you have to kind of be, be standing by waiting for a Republican overreach? I mean, that, that seems to happen quite a bit, you know, as the Tea Partiers push various forms of, of you know, the agenda. Um, there seems to be an overreach. In certain, but is, is that a potential opening for Democrats in Texas? You know, Chris, it, it is. It's only a question of when. There, there are these forces who say, Texas, we, we're going to turn Texas blue. Well, I don't think there's a question of whether Texas is going to turn blue or at least exceedingly competitive in the next 10 to 15 years. It's really not whether Texas turns blue. It's when they turn blue. I see very little this year that Mark will mark a change in the conservative Republican um, hegemony of Texas, of Republican, you know, Republican uh, control uh, in in Texas. The overreach could come in two or three areas. It probably will not come on the issues of immigration, from Karl Rove to George W. Bush to Rick Perry. Texans tend to be much more sensitive. Texas Republicans, conservatives, much more sensitive on immigration. Uh, than many of their their fellow Republicans around the country. We have a long border with Mexico. It doesn't mean that Texans don't talk about securing the border, but they understand that if we speak in harsh terms to a growing constituency, it's death to the party. And so I don't think the overreach will come over something like immigration. It could come in an area like 
uh, after 10 to 15 years of Republican control of the legislature and the state offices and a very conservative Tea Party, penurious, don't spend any money, don't spend money on schools, don't spend money on highways, don't spend money on water projects. At some point, there are Democratic operatives who believe that voters will say, enough is enough. I'm ready to spend more money even if it's tax money, if it's wisely spent for my kids' schools, and after 15 to 20 years of Republican rule, I've had enough. Now, whether that's going to happen, I don't know. That's the area of overreach, much more subtle and much more nuanced than I think some Republicans um, are willing to admit or recognize at this moment. And is there hope for Democrats at all? Uh, as I was trying to think about different personalities and different potential leadership, assuming, you know, obviously if Wendy Davis wins, there, there's your, you know, Democratic leadership. But but if not, um, you got to really look at the Castro brothers down in San yep. Antonio, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, that's Julian Castro, the mayor of San Antonio, his twin brother, uh, Joaquin Castro, state uh, member of Congress, both of them bright, young, uh, they are the future of this party. One of those is very likely going to be a U.S. senator or the governor, or maybe one will be one and one will be the other. Uh, there are a, a number of other folks um, sort of waiting in the wings, the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the cast of uh, sort of younger Hispanic figures. And frankly, I wouldn't even rule out Ann Richards' granddaughter, Lily Adams, uh, that's the granddaughter of Ann Richards. She's now working for the Republican National Committee in Washington. Very smart. Very, very, very young. <laughs> but one of these days, I could see her coming back, uh, as, as well as a group of young legislators and, frankly, some people we've never even heard of, maybe in city council or in, in, uh, maybe even just in, in college or very early uh, in their political uh, activity and their political lives now, who will become the sort of future uh, uh, group of Democrats who once Hispanics began to vote in numbers that are more representative of the population as the population grows, and once maybe some of this overreach that we were talking about uh, uh, sort of gets through to some voters in Texas, uh, once that happens, all Democrats need is a, uh, is a roster of candidates and I got to tell you, the Castro brothers are at the top of that list. Yeah, they they certainly seem to be. And just to close out, in terms of a list of top candidates in Texas, uh, what would Texas be if you didn't have a Bush running for office? George Prescott Bush, Jeb's son, W's nephew, H.W.'s grandson. Prescott's great-grandson, he's running for Texas Land Commissioner. Wayne, don't the Bushes own all the land in Texas already? Let me tell you, this guy's going to own something in the future. I could see him. Uh, George P. Bush, uh, if you remember him, he was a little grandson who showed up on the stage of the National Convention on behalf of his grandfather a long, long time ago. I do. I uh, can't believe he's, what, 38, 36 now, something like this? I, 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 yeah, yeah I remember. Very, very attractive, very uh, 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 very articulate, very good. He is a shoe-in. He will be the next Texas Land Commissioner. Um, in, 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 in keeping with the politics of the moment, he is a Bush, very appealing to Hispanics, uh, very appealing to Republicans, 
and he's a Tea Party conservative. Not a crazy conservative, but he's a Tea Party conservative who's very strong on the issue of abortion, has expressed some strong attitude in support of uh, traditional marriage, uh, and and was an early supporter of Ted Cruz on the Tea Party side, so he's kind of taken care of that that Bush problem with some uh, Republicans who think the Bushes might be a little soft and squishy, not this guy. And I just thought of one more as you were talking about uh, uh, Prescott, George Prescott Bush, and of course his father, Jeb Bush, potential presidential candidate. What about Rick Perry? Is he is he going to win? And and his you know his his national introduction four years ago you know didn't go quite so well for him. Has he made a comeback from that at all within Texas? Do you see him? Uh, do you see him announcing it all for president? Uh, I, I see him, you know, it, it's funny, people ask, is Rick Perry running for president? And the answer is, yeah, uh, will he run? And the answer is, he's already running. He, he was in Iowa the other day. He's yeah. in South Carolina. He's with Cruz, Cruz and Perry. Frankly, I think all of these people are running for president until they're not. Will he formally announce at some point? I believe he will. He's assembled a team here uh, in Texas. They believe fundamentally that if he, that people will forgive him if he comes back, has answers, doesn't look uh, like he's just a dope, which is what he looked like the last time, uh, um, and that if he's been self-effacing enough, as he's tried to be on these national shows and on speeches by saying America believes in second chances. I have to tell you, I've been to Iowa. I've talked uh, especially to uh, some, some folks in Western Iowa Republicans who say among those two Texans, Ted Cruz and uh, Rick Perry, they like Ted Cruz. Uh, so it will be interesting to see what happens in places like Iowa and South Carolina. And then emerging by 2016, the primary will be on March 1st in Texas. And you'll have Cruz, Perry, Jeb Bush, who has his Texas connections, and who knows, and frankly, Rand Paul, whose dad uh, was a member of, as a member of Congress here. All of them competing in Texas, and uh, I think all of them will actually have been announced candidates and in the race at that point. Fantastic. So, so there we go. March first, two thousand sixteen. The party is at Wayne Slater's house. It's right here, and um, I'm I'm betting that it's probably cruised by a point or two. Uh, but the good thing for me as a reporter is that my newspaper will be sending me all over the place because there's always, it seems, a Texan. Uh, in national political uh, campaigns somewhere. There, there sure does. And if you want to uh, learn and understand what's going on in Texas politics and more and beyond, Wayne Slater is the man to go to. He is the senior political writer for the Dallas Morning News, he covered Texas and national politics for 20 years, author of just a couple of books on Karl Rove and, uh, and a terrific conversationalist and storyteller. Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time with me. Great to be with you, Chris. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.